If you've got a Bible, uh, another great thing God's people can do is open up to His Word. Uh, we're going to be in Mark 11 tonight. We're going to begin our time together by reading Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Um, this is not our normal uh, Acts Bible study on Sunday evenings, of course. We are taking a break from uh, our normal Wednesday and Sunday night activities to do a little bit of a, a mini-series in Mark. Uh, if you're with us on Wednesday, we began this uh, brand new, uh, again, kind of Easter, uh, Easter series um, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, focusing on the passion narrative as told by Mark, which was at, as told by Peter. So hopefully that makes sense. Peter's version of the gospel written by Mark. Um, so we, I like every, I think it's important every year that we go through at least one of the gospels um, narratives about the Easter story. So we're going to begin, uh, we've began a little bit before Passion Week started, and then we're going to be uh, looking at the Palm Sunday narrative tonight. So Mark 11, 1 through 11, the Bible says, now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches or palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before him and those who followed cried out, saying, or singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around and at all things at the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve so again, we are spending just a brief couple of services last Wednesday tonight, this Wednesday and Friday, and then of course sunrise service, uh, at looking at Mark's gospel. Mark is the shortest gospel. It's the most uh, abbreviated, concise to the point uh, story, uh, uh, Easter story or story of, of Jesus's ministry. Uh, so we uh, are looking at a time period uh, that focuses around the week of Passover, 30 AD. So Passover was this annual Jewish festival uh, that kickstarted um, a series of festivals, uh, festival, uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, and, and of course led to Pentecost. Um, so this time of year was very important for the Jewish people. It called back to their coming into the land uh, under Moses and, and of course establishment under Joshua. It called back to the Red Sea crossing and how God saved the nation. So they came together every year, every spring, the month of Nisan, which is around April or March for us, which is why it moves with the, with the moon uh, every year it's a different different weekend uh, because the the Hebrew calendar is different than ours um, but uh, the the Pass Passover week um, this is uh, the time period that all the stuff that you know we celebrate uh, the Easter story in and around would have took place uh, so we opened up Wednesday to Mark 10 which takes place around 10 days before Palm Sunday so Mark's gospel is unique so you can split it in half the first eight or nine chapters take place across three years the last a uh, few chapters take place across 10 days. Uh, so kind of time stands still and comes to a halt um, as Jesus gets near to Jerusalem. Uh, beginning in Mark 10, he begins to lead the disciples towards Jerusalem as they make their final stretch. They, uh, they take a couple days journey to get to Jerusalem. And then of course, uh, chapter 11 uh, is the Sunday of Passover week uh, around 30 AD. So 
Our focus of the night uh, was that the disciples and the crowds were expecting one thing, but Jesus was planning another thing, which that happens a lot, isn't it? Doesn't it? God has plans and we have expectations. So the narrative that we even look at tonight is going to continue to be around this theme of their expectations, as in the disciples' expectations, the people's expectations, our expectations versus God's plans. The Proverbs says that we make plans, but the Lord establishes our days, right? So we have expectations. God has plans. It's not been ever more clear that there's a divergence between the two than in the story of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus that led up to this sacred week all those years ago because they were convinced that he was Messiah. They were right, but they had a different idea of what Messiah was going to be like. Um, their mind, in their minds, meant uh, a political figure. Uh, he was a political liberator, a political revolutionary. He came to establish a kingdom. Of course, they sing about a kingdom of their father, David. They expected that Jesus was going to reestablish the kingdom that David and Solomon had once held so, so, so gloriously that fell apart in their aftermath. They expected a Messiah to liberate Israel from Rome's, uh, you know, Rome's rule from all the other kingdoms that vied for power over Israel. They expected a Messiah to be a political liberator uh, that would exert his power over all the others on the world and ensure their prosperity. Now you, all, you have to understand the Jewish people believed they were greater than all else, all other people. They believed that Messiah would exalt them and prop them up and prosper them above all other people, even at other people's expense. They expected a kingdom that would make them great. Uh, They expected a kingdom that would give them peace and prosperity, even if it meant the rest of the world didn't have it. That's just how they saw the world. And according to the Old Testament, that's how they believed God was moving all things towards. So Jesus's three-year ministry had made it very clear that his power and his destiny, of course, were from and of God. Uh, he performed miracles over nature, over demons, healed diseases and all sorts of uh, uh, ailments. He established his authority over the uh, leaders of the land, over the religious figures of the land. Um, everybody on the Jesus train was just waiting for things to kick into overdrive because he had checked all the boxes. He had performed miracles, did signs, did wonders, preached amazing sermons. Clearly he was the Messiah. Nicodemus, a Pharisee even said, clearly you're from God because no one could do the things you're doing unless you were from God. So everyone was on board. This is Messiah. This is the son of David. His kingdom is just around the corner. And they thought that this day, this Palm Sunday was the coronation day. They thought that this was the day they had been waiting for since for generations, for thousands of years since the promise was given way back to Abraham that God would give his people a special place, a higher place, an exalted place, that this was the way they would finally arrive. But Jesus begins to signal that things are not going to go as they expect. Uh, Around Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Jesus begins preaching and doing things that really troubled his followers. Uh, Peter even took him aside at one point and said, Jesus, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're hot, maybe you're just stressed, but we need to talk about your sermons because they're not good. Now, they were great, but they didn't like what they were about. And it doesn't doesn't mean they weren't good, but I know that sometimes, right? Sometimes they're good, but sometimes they don't land that good. But that's how it works, isn't it? But Peter said, Jesus, you know, I got to rebuke you. I've been watching you rebuke demons. I'm going to rebuke you with the same rebuke. And then 
course, Jesus rebuked Peter with a greater rebuke, and he called him, uh, he called him Satan at one point. So, hey, Peter, don't, don't rebuke Jesus. That doesn't work out too well. But they were concerned because Jesus was kind of signaling that maybe he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting him to be. They were preparing for him to be. Uh, there was a, a conversation about children. They tried to get the kids away from Jesus because kids were noisy. Kids were, you know, were in the way. Kids were commodities in those days. They weren't precious as we may think they are. Uh, they, they, they tried to get the kids away from Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 I want the kids with me. They're the heart of the kingdom. If you don't like that, you don't like me. They didn't like that. They didn't really understand why a king would want to spend time with kids because that just wasn't their worldview about what a glorious, you know, mighty king would want to do with his time. Then there was a rich man that came to Jesus and said, hey, buddy, I've got a lot I can contribute to your kingdom. I got a lot I can do for you. I bet you can do a lot for me. So let's, let's make a deal. Let's work together. And then Jesus says, you need to sell what you've got and give it to the poor if you want to be with me. And this rich man walks away weeping because he was not going to let go of his riches. And he didn't expect the Messiah to make him lose his riches either. So the disciples were worried because this wasn't what they thought. This wasn't how they thought things would go. See, Jesus, his kingdom were going to be built on different principles and values than the world was rooted in. But the disciples thought that Jesus was just going to uphold the worldly values, the worldly systems, and you make them lean more toward them. But that wasn't how... They were going to go. It wasn't how Jesus was signaling things would go. Then it all comes together in a message that Jesus gives in Mark 10 that we looked at the other night. It all comes together in a message about what it means to be great, what it means to be great. And the reason why this was the message was because the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest and who would be the greatest when Jesus builds his kingdom in a couple of days. Like in a couple of days, we're getting ready for it. John and James sent their mom to ask Jesus if they could have the right and left seat at the throne. I mean, they were really thinking this was how it was going to go down. And Jesus says, y'all, y'all, I got to tell y'all that being great in my kingdom is not how you think being great. It's not what you think being great is all about. That in the world, you're told that being great is measured a certain way. I think I need to clarify what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And back in Mark 10, Jesus said to them, he says, you know that the Gentiles like to really rub it in people's faces when they are large and in charge. That when a Gentile takes over a kingdom, when a Gentile kingdom conquers another one, that kingdom says, hey, we're, we're in control. You're not. Give us money. Bow to us and, and, and do what we say. And Jesus says, that's not how it operates in my kingdom. I didn't come to rule. I didn't come to, to exercise dominance over the world. I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And that jarred, I'm, t- I'm telling you, that was jarring to them. It'd be like me getting up here preaching from a different book and telling people about someone besides Jesus. It was so jarring to them to hear him say that his kingdom was not going to be built on these principles of the world. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll be a servant. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll be last in line. Because you see something more important. This wasn't what they expected a Messiah to be. This wasn't what they anticipated being saved meant. Jesus makes it clear that he came to initiate and institute a greater way of life. A greater way of life, one not fueled by competition or comparison, which is what our world is rooted in, isn't it? We compete with each other. We compare with each other. We want to be greater than. We want to get more than, do more than, have more than, be more like than. Jesus says, I'm not about that competition and comparison. That's of the world. My kingdom is not built in on those principles. My kingdom is built on humility and compassion. Come again, Jesus. Humility and compassion. I mean, what kind of, you know, what kind of deal is this, Jesus? When are you going to pull the gloves off and get right to the real stuff? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm serious, y'all. 
I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I don't know where y'all got this narrative from, but I did not come to do what you think I came to do. This was Jesus' default posture towards people. His heart remained this way towards people. Back in Mark 6, there's an episode that is so, so powerful. It says that Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Now, that doesn't just mean that he chose to be compassionate. The Greek there is a single word uh, that it's so cool. I wish I could pronounce it very well without making a fool of myself. But it's a really cool word that we get the word spleen from. But the idea is there that in Jesus' innermost parts, in his stomach, in his bowels, in his gut, he felt something. That it was something natural that God himself possesses, that we can possess if we let Jesus change us, but we don't do this naturally. But that phrase, had compassion on them, is a single Greek word that literally means moved from his innermost parts, moved from his belly, moved with compassion for those that he saw. Something that the heart of God naturally does. Is this our response towards the world? When we see people in need, or are we like the rest of our world that sees an opportunity to take and dominate and be greater than? You know, our world understands greatness on this greater than axis. How am I ahead? How can I get ahead? How can I remain ahead? But what Jesus offers us, if we follow him, is this gift of humility and compassion. These are not normal, but these are Christian. This may feel like a world where last is first and first is last, and that's the whole point. Because we are living in a capsized ship that Jesus came to make right side up. Now, we come to Mark 11, and Jesus is going to have his grand entrance into town. But even in his entrance, we see he's still challenging their expectations of him. He knew the hype was building about him. He heard whispers that there were people preparing to meet him as he entered Jerusalem. And by all means, he deserved this attention. Not saying he did not deserve this attention. But what they wanted him to do was not what he had come to do. That was the problem. He knew everyone believed him to be their Messiah, but they had a warped idea of what Messiah was like and who he was. They were expecting a revolution. Politicians can say that better than I can. I don't want to imitate somebody. They were expecting a revolution. They were expecting a movement, an uprising, a revolt. So Jesus, seeing this coming and drawing the prophets of old, he plans an entry into the city. He plans to enter the city in a way that would contrast their expectations and his plans clarifying who he was, what kind of Messiah. Well, how can there be more than one kind? Well, there isn't more than one kind. But they believed in a one kind, but there was really another. So in Mark 11, 1 and 2, maybe we've not really paid much attention to this, but we're, he tells two disciples, so he gets them over to the side and says, listen, y'all, I know what y'all are planning. I know the big deal. I've heard the, I see the pl- pl- floats. I hear the music. I, you know, I deserve all this, but I, I, you know, I got to temper your expectations here. So I need two of y'all to go to this part of town and I need y'all to find this colt. A colt is a little donkey, a young donkey, an unproven, un, un, untrained donkey. I need you to go get this little donkey. He'll, he, he's so untrained, he's still with his mama. Matthew says that the mom donkey brought the, foal, brought the colt with him. Mark, Mark just focuses on the colt, but Matthew says there were two. So this colt had not even left his mother's side. It wasn't what you would expect Jesus to ride in on, and that's the whole point. Jesus clearly knows that the people in the city are expecting his arrival. Anytime, no doubt, people within his own circle were helping to prepare this event. This wasn't going to be a spontaneous thing. They had a whole to-do plan. So Jesus could have played coy. He could have just walked in the gates and been like, oh, no, I didn't expect this at all. But he was indeed Messiah. He wasn't going to downplay that part. But he was seeking to make sure they knew what his intentions were. 
These people had been trying to make him king. Remember back in John 6, whenever he fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king by force. And he had to you know, basically just you know, exit stage left. Uh, trying to coerce him to be king. They were trying to coerce him to trigger some revolt. They were ready to riot. They were ready to do the things that revolutionaries do. Burn stuff down and take stuff over and turn stuff over. And walk up to people in charge and say, we're the bosses now. That's what you do when you revolt and take over something. They were expecting Jesus to do that on this day. But right off the bat, this signals something different is on Jesus' mind. He retrieves a donkey, specifically a colt, as opposed to a horse. A war-raging revolutionary king would almost certainly ride in on a horse, wouldn't he? That's how the stories are told. That's what the Old Testament suggests. A war-raging revolutionary, here I am to take back this place for my people, would come in on a horse with much pomp and circumstance. They tried to give him the parade, so all he needed to do was, was find the stallion. But Jesus didn't go for the horse. That's not who Jesus was. Of course, the Old Testament predicted this. They didn't realize that they were fulfilling the prophecy, but Jesus, of course, leaned into this. Uh, about, and, and the prophecies give us an idea of what kind of Savior the Messiah would actually be. Zechariah 9, verse number 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Now you understand why they thought the Messiah was going to be a war-raging revolutionary king, don't you? Because the Old Testament refers to him as a king. And what do kings do? They ride into town and take back what belongs to them. So behold, your king is coming. Righteous in having salvation is he. Now, kings were not known to be righteous. Kings were bloody. Kings were, you know, had, had, were war-torn. Righteous, that's, a, that's an odd word for a king because righteous evokes character that kings don't normally have. Having salvation, now salvation from the enemies, well, that's what we want. But maybe this salvation was something different than they expected. Because that next line, humble and mounted on a donkey, well, we don't expect a king to be humble. You don't want a humble king. You want a bold and brash king. And that's what they were expecting. So Jesus rode in on a donkey to show that he was a peacemaking, restoring Messiah. Not a savior of the fleshly things, but to do a spiritual work for the heart of people. Donkeys in the Bible, uh, just in the, in the ancient world in general, but donkeys c communicate a few different messages I think will help us uh, connect the dots here. Often kings would send donkeys ahead to an enemy's city with an offering loaded on them. You'll see this in the Old Testament in the story of Jacob and Esau, the story of David and Abigail and uh, her, her husband. You'll see this in the story of the Philistines and the Jewish people when they were having uh, fights back and forth. Often kings would send donkeys ahead to an enemy city with some sort of peace offering laid on them or some sort of gift attached to them, a wagon attached to them or so forth, to make peace or serve as a gift ahead of some meeting. Now, we see that again in a few episodes of Israel's history, so that's one thing to consider. Also consider that while donkeys uh, were not always carrying people, they, were always, they usually were accompanying entourages carrying burdens. So in the Old Testament, we see donkeys carrying peace offerings and also donkeys carrying burdens, carrying the things that people could not carry themselves. We see both of these pictures in Christ riding in on a donkey. Christ, we know, was the peace offering sent ahead to ransom us from sin. This city that looked religious and seemed holy, but really was a picture of the enemies trapping us all in our sin. This system was not saving anybody. So Jesus was the peace offering sent ahead on a donkey to this city where he would be offered on a cross. 
But he also would bear our burdens in his death. That the donkey carrying Jesus, the symbol of Jesus carrying our burdens that we can't handle on our own, that are crushing us. We remember that this wasn't the first time that Jesus would have entered Judea on a donkey also. That as a baby still in his mother's womb, just days away from his birth, he came into Bethlehem on a donkey. And now he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. We see Jesus again assuming the role of the least of these, assuming the role of those that would have had it the most difficult in his day and age. So in this moment of Jesus on a donkey coming to town, we see both humility and compassion. The humility of his posture on a donkey and his compassion for us as he would bring this offering, as he would bear our burdens. Now, we also see a bit of symbolism regarding us, I believe, in this selection of this particular donkey. Um, we notice that, that it, again, we explained the colt. It was with his mother, so it wasn't a proven donkey, one that most would have picked out to bring a king in on, to t- bring a king into town with. But we also see that Jesus gives specific instructions uh, about this donkey because he anticipates some blowback. He anticipates some people saying, why do you want this one? I mean, why would you, you know, Jesus, we know who Jesus is. Jesus, hey, I've got some horses over here that I can give you, but I I don't know if this is the donkey. This is the one that you're looking for. Why would they need this colt? There would have been more proven horses. There's a couple of things here. You probably heard in literature and history uh, a reference to the king's steed or the king's chariot. Now, in the ancient world or in, the, in, in medieval times, the king would, of course, have a chariot, have a fleet of horses that would, would, be on, would have the honor of carrying him into battle or carrying him into some sort of uh, a place of prominence. It was a tradition that a would-be king would ride a horse from their current king's stable to show a transition of power. But Jesus selected a cult that had not been broken because, of course, Jesus had always been king. He wasn't taking anybody else's place because no one had ever taken his place. He wasn't riding someone else's horse because he was not coming in after someone else's rule. He was always in control. Just assumption of what always had been, here he comes in. And now a better approach, though, to this text is with reference to what this means for us. Because in reality, and again, I... By all due respect to Jesus, he is God. He deserves our praise. The triumphal entry is what recognizes him as king, but we knew he was king before Mark 11. We know he's king after Mark 11. So I think it's safe to say that the true triumph of this entry isn't so much in what it means for Jesus, but in what it means for us. In what it means for us. Because I think his style of entry preaches the gospel rather uniquely, but also very clearly. Jesus says of this cult, untie him, bring him to me, for the Lord has need of him. This is our triumph, isn't it? That Jesus has come to loose us from this world, that no one in the world may say we have much worth or we, have, we will measure up. The enemy says to us that we'll never be anything. The enemy tries to hold us back and tie us down. Of course, sin in, our, in the systems of this world, we are chained down by this world. But Jesus says, loose him and bring him to me. And Jesus says to you and he says to me, loose them and bring them to me because God has a purpose. God has a need. God has a place for them. The Holy Spirit finds us and brings us to Jesus. We have freedom and forgiveness. The former things pass away and all things become new. 
And what is said over us from then on, if anyone questions, if anyone condemns, if anyone tries to deny our place, as symbolized in verse 5 and 6, when people say, why are you choosing him? Why did you bring her? What did they have in this? Jesus says, you tell them the Lord has need of them and rebuke the enemy's attempts to disqualify you and discredit you and remove you from God's kingdom. I love the scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in, what's the word? Triumphal procession. So yes, the triumphal entry is about Jesus coming into town as the king of kings, but it's also the beginning of our triumph. Because Jesus did not come to rule from a throne. He came to die on a cross. And that is where our victory is made or is is achieved, isn't it? This is true salvation. This is what his entry is all about. Many of the people that day didn't recognize it, but they soon would experience it. Maybe we don't realize why we need Jesus, but today can be the day that we discover that. As the scripture, the last half of that text that we read, we see they throw out their their cloths, they put out their palm branches, they begin to sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You see, the crowds really liked this idea of a king rising up to establish a place of prosperity and power. They were in on this. They were eager about this. We would have been there with them that day, with the crowd saying, Hosanna in the highest. But as the tune and as the tone changed throughout the week, the same crowds would go from singing to rooting against, to condemning. You see, they were eager for the parade, but they were not so eager for the cross. Hosanna in the highest on one day and crucify him a few days later. Yet it's the cross, not the parade, that saves our life. This is our true victory, not some short-lived celebration on Sunday afternoon, but that dreadful moment of condemnation on Friday at noon. Of course, we know this. It's easy for us on this side of things to criticize these folks. It's right on this side of the cross that we still respond to Jesus in the appropriate posture, understanding the whole story. Now, the crowd on this day, their heart was, their lips were there, but their hearts were far off. But we know the whole story. We know that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to a city that would reject him. As John told us this morning, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. Oh, they're here today cheering for him, but a few days later they would not stand by him, save Mary and John. But the gracious thing is that his response to those who rejected him would be to die for them. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus knew these very people flanking the streets saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, would be either cursing him or denying him a few days later. His own entourage, his own disciples, one would betray him, one would deny him, and the rest of them, save John, would forsake him. Oh, they were back there the day of the resurrection saying, hey, we, were, we, we, we never left Jesus. And of course he knew they did. At least Thomas was honest. The rest of them pretended like they didn't give up. But they all had given up. Over in Mark 12, I would encourage you to read this parable on your own time in your study this week. In Mark 12, Jesus tells a parable about how he came in, how God sent a Messiah to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, the ones who should have anticipated him, rejected him. And not only rejected him, but killed him. By the end of the week, the people would be on their side. And no one, again, save his mother and John, would be by his side. But come on, if we would have been there, 
You know, I know people say that we like to talk about, you know, if it would have just been me, Jesus would have died for me. But if it would have just been me, I would have been the one nailing him to the cross. Right? I mean, yes, he would have done it for me. But if it would have just been me, I would have been the one doing it to him. Because this story, again, about people celebrating him one day and a few days later forsaking him, cursing him, gleefully watching him bleed and die. Because he, you know why they were happy about it? Because he was not who they thought he was going to be. And he, in their minds, deceived and betrayed them by not living up to their expectations. Isn't it true that so many Christians, so many of us, when God does not meet our expectations, we are no better than these people. Now, we don't nail and we don't curse, but in our own hearts, we back down on the singing, don't we? Hosanna turns into something less. We know that we all have rejected him at some point. Yet the kingdom's doors remain wide open to us all. Why are the kingdom's doors open? Because of what Jesus went to do. They sang about a kingdom that day. They expected to come in their time, but we know the kingdom is still yet to come. Right after this, Jesus curses a fig tree. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel because he was displeased with Israel for having things so backwards and missing his true message. He curses the fig tree down in verse number 12 through 14 uh, as a symbol of Israel. You were given this and you rejected it. Over in Mark 13, another important text I would encourage you to read over the next couple of days, Jesus says, there is coming a day when Israel and the world will be prepared for my second coming. I think that Jesus, why are you coming again? You're here right now, but they don't understand that a few days later he's going to die. And Jesus says, when you, all this takes place, you'll understand that I am looking forward to another, another day, to a coming day, the sequel to Palm Sunday, if you will, when the world will receive me once again. And I won't be arriving on a donkey that time. I will be coming on a horse mounted and prepared to usher in the kingdom age for all who have trusted in me. Revelation 19 gives us a preview of that. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one, on, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, what does that mean? On his crown, he had a name written. Now, uh, before that, it says he was called faithful and true. After this, it says he's called the word of God. It's not that we don't know who this is. We know this is Jesus. But John is saying that there are still things that we don't know. There are still things about our God that have not been revealed that we can't handle and we don't deserve right now. But one day, one day we'll get there. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, of course, his own blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Remember, John says he is the word of God, the full, final, definitive word from God. Well, get this. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth. Because what does the word do? He speaks and things happen, right? From his mouth comes a sword, sharp, that will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hosanna in the highest. God gets the final word. A different tone than Palm Sunday, isn't it? But the reason why the first, the first parade into town 
was so humble and compassionate is because Jesus made a way for us to be saved, to be with him as he rides into this battle, to bring salvation to the whole earth. Over in Mark 13, Jesus talks about this, and I would encourage you to look at verses 23 through 40, 24 through 37 in your free time where Jesus says there is coming a day when the heavens will be shaken. There is coming a day when the fig tree will bloom again and all things will come together uh, for Israel and for the whole world when God will bring in his kingdom that they expected back then but is coming yet in the future. And he closes that passage by saying, watch or stay awake. This day is coming soon. So we must stay awake. We must anticipate this coming. The greater Palm Sunday to come where the song they sang 2,000 years ago will once again be relevant. We may enter this kingdom by death. We may enter it through the day of the Lord and his return. Either way, when he comes, will we be found with that same song in our mouth? Verse 9 through 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Will this song be on our tongues? Again, it's easy to criticize them for not understanding what he came to do, but we have no excuse. Because not only do we know in hindsight what Palm Sunday was all about, what Good Friday were all about, what Easter Sunday was all about, we have the revelation that this is going to happen in the future. So there is no excuse for us not to have this song on our tongues every single day because every day could be the next Palm Sunday. The Lord has united us, untied us from our sin. He's placed us by his side. He has had a great need and calling over our life. So we know this song should be on our mouth every single day. Before kings and kingdoms of this earth, we sing and trust in a greater power. Our allegiance is to God and God alone. We don't fear or cower or worship our earthly things because we defer to a greater power to come. Before the chaos and crises of this life, we claim and possess a greater peace. Our affection is knit to God. Before the temptation and test of this world, we commit to and hold on to greater promises. Why? Because we know our Messiah has saved us from sin. We know our Messiah is coming again to save us from this world. So we trust in his greater power, his greater peace, and his greater promises. May we be found day after day with Hosanna on our tongues, with his kingdom on our minds, with his spirit in our hearts. Jesus is our triumph. He is our victory now over sin and forever over death. So triumph, the triumphal entry, yes, it's about Jesus and his glory, but it's also about our triumphal entry into the kingdom of God, our triumphal entry into the family of God. So now we can stand by his side every single day, waving palm branches, waving our up, lifting our hands up, singing our song, because we know it could be the day when his kingdom truly comes, when he returns. Palm Sunday, number one, was great. Palm Sunday number two could be here any day. So may we be found prepared, focusing, worshiping him when this glorious day comes. Jesus' humility and compassion gave us an entry. May what he's done for our heart, may his, his freedom and salvation he's given us, may that make us all the more attentive and ready and awake, looking for that day that's coming soon. Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you for your triumphal entry into this world 2,000 years ago. And thank you that you have put a future date on our calendars. Just as you came into Jerusalem, you will come again. This time on a horse, this time in all of your glory, this time to bring in the kingdom of God that they expected all those years before. But before that, you give us an opportunity to get ready for it. What you went into Jerusalem to do that day was not rule and reign, but was to die, to suffer, to lose your life so we might find and save ours. Father, thank you for letting us have a place in this story, but we are all the more obligated and all the more uh, required and responsible to sing your praise and to know that your first coming gave us an opportunity to get in so we might be prepared for and pointing to your second coming because we know that it's sooner than we think. And even so, Lord, come quickly. We ask this in your glorious name. Amen.